I'm joined by three of my favorite people today on the topic of uh, elections and, you know, in the wake of the Biden and Harris election victory uh, and with other things still going all around the country. uh, I thought it was really important to pull together some really opinionated but also well-informed friends of mine. They happen to all be Howard University alum. First, Meaty, I hope I say your last name right, but everybody knows once you say Meaty, every there's only one Meaty anybody ever knows. So Meaty, is it Bartonelli? Bartonelli? Bartonelli. Bartonelli, because it used to be something. I knew the other one. I knew it was Clark. Meaty Clark. Right. Clark. That's it. it was simple. My friend Meaty Bartonelli so, was recently one of three she's who actually was the vote caster in the Electoral College for uh, the city of Washington, D.C., and also, media, I got to give you huge props because when COVID hit Washington, the amount of coverage that you personally created, like it was a daily newscast from Media's car, like really giving us, never mind what CNN and them are saying, this is what's really happening from the nurse's perspective. And it was like incredibly informative and it really connected us all over the world to what was happening because you're our friend. You know what you're doing. Please introduce yourself, Media. Thank you so much, B. I mean, well, you said it all. My name is Meaty Bartnelli. I am a proud Howard University graduate, and I am a mother, I am a wife, and I am a nurse, and I'm, a, I guess, a healthcare hero currently. And I am also very humbled and elated to represent uh, the District of Columbia residents as one of the three, as you mentioned, 2020 presidential electors for the District of Columbia. That is who I am. Love it. So I'm grateful to be here. Thank you, dear. Next up. My main man, 50 grand, Lavelle Flamon. Vel and I used to live together on, on, at, at our sophomore year at Howard University. And, and since that time, and even before that, there has never been a break in our communication, our friendship, our compassion for one another. And we also have arguments and disagreements and, and pointed discussions. And this one in particular this week was about um, politics and an election process and what do we do next and what didn't we do? Vel, introduce yourself. How do you introduce yourself, sir? Well, uh, my name is Lavelle Flamon, a proud Howard grad, uh, proud Chicagoan, uh, proud current Denver uh, resident, uh, union electrician, uh, former e-board member, um, world citizen, and concerned uh, friend to many, and uncle to many. (laughs) Right. And last but not least, the man who feeds the world. Yes, he one, does. <laughs> one or two nights in a row every single October. He mentions later how this is the his house is the place to be, and it's not just for kids; it's for adults too. It, I can't imagine letting that many people in my house. My wife would throw me out. My main man, Tiger Clan, rules the world. Rudy McGann, please introduce yourself, yeah, sir. Hi, well, my name is Rudolph McGann. I'm a staff attorney with the District of Columbia Board of Elections. I'm an election administrator. I've been doing that for just realized 21 years. Um, I am a resident of D.C. I've never left. Went to Howard University for undergrad and law school. So nice. I went twice. Um, I have uh, two children, lovely wife that also went to Howard University. She's now a professor, a tenured professor at Howard University. So we live close to Howard. So it's just it's in my blood. I can't I can't really leave it alone. And it's been a real pleasure uh, dialoguing with everyone today. I've been talking to a couple friends. 
who went to PWIs, right? And what I get the distinct sense of is that what our alma mater means to us and what our Greek letter organizations mean to us, it may be an, an expanded uh, sense of, of uh, importance in our experience compared to some of theirs. How do you see that? Have you heard that before? What's, what's been your experience? So um, as a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, I will say this has been an extremely humbling experience. Um, Deltas were the, the first and the only um, Black female group sorority that was even allowed to participate in the women's suffrage movement back in 1913, which was pretty much the precipice upon which we were founded. And even doing more research, not just through my journey to become a Delta, but doing more research about the women's suffrage movement, it was very interesting to me that even at that time, the women who were leading that movement did not even want us to be there, even Mm. though we were women. And so to really reflect in 2020, that I am able to stand and cast the ballot as um, a female, a black female, a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, when Alice Paul and so many others who were the leaders of the women's suffrage movement did not want us to even partake and to think about what they risked. My 22 founders who went down there, who marched from our campus at Howard and marched downtown and participated was, is it's, I can't even really put it into words because um, all of us voted, I'm sure, but none of us left with the fear of our life, you know, someone coming home to blow up our, our house because we just cast about ballot, you three um, handsome black gentlemen that are on today were not uh, brutalized or beaten with, you know, bats or anything, or your life put at risk because you voted to that on last week or, yeah, on Tuesday. And so when I just really sit, Brendan, and really think about what that means, I, I don't have words. It's just I truly stand on the shoulders of so many men and women before all of us that allowed that possibility to take place. Mm-hmm. What do you get from your friend circle root? You know, um, with my organization, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, one of our, our key programs is a voteless people is a hopeless people. So we're intricately involved in registering people to vote and doing voter education about candidates and running for office. And a lot of what I do in terms of my career choice and my path was inspired by Alpha. And so I've been in this capacity ooh, for 20 years now. So you made a, a scary path. face. Like, has it really been 20 years? <laughs> I was thinking I'm like, now I'm looking back Yeah, It's been since 99. So 21 years actually. And I've seen a lot of presidential cycles now and local cycles as well. But what fascinates me more so then the presidential cycles is, is the local races and the passion here in D.C. with respect to offices as small as the Advisory Neighborhood Commission, which is like the smallest constituency, not paid, but people really, really, really get involved in terms of what what my my uh, real big part in that is, is um, nominating petition validation. So they're put up for inspection and it's incumbent upon the citizenry to challenge nominating petitions. And that was one of the things I missed. I was telling you before that I was on sick leave, so I didn't get to 
participate in that process this time around. And I, I really regret it because, you know, that's where you see democracy at the most basic level where people are saying, well, they didn't get enough, enough signatures and I'm going to take you to court about it because I feel a different way. You know, and that's what my job really entails around the election cycle mm -hmm. specifically. And so not getting to be a part of that this time really made me feel some kind of way. So I really had more sick leave, but I went back to work on Monday and everybody in the office was shocked that I came back. They were like, oh, you, you sure you're okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And it's just good to be back, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. you know, everybody's still counting y'all. So what's happening is we're going um, through all the absentee ballots that have come in. And that's, that's nationwide. So I know a lot of people have the misperception that when you hear it called on election night, that's it. But typically, you still have to count your absentee ballots, which in most jurisdictions, you have up to a week after for your absentees to come in, provided that they're postmarked on election day. And so what's happened this election cycle is an inordinately greater amount of people have voted by absentee ballot to avoid going in for fear, you know, what also happened and what seems odd about it, but it's really very explainable is that the Trump administration put in, put a all stops out to, to discourage people. And mostly it was their own constituency discouraged them from voting by mail saying that it was fraudulent. And so what happened as a result is most of their votes came in by in-person voting, whereas Democrats stress the fact that if you can get make a plan, if you can get to the polls, that's fine, but make sure you vote early if you can and avoid the lines at the end because we know how that happens and how, how things can get messed up on election day. So if you vote early... And, and Rudy, can I interject to say to you, also, there's a pandemic happening. <laughs> so, right, right. I mean, we can't it's, forget there is a national health, uh, international health pandemic as well. So that was a very interesting point you made. And so what I was saying also about um, the primary here in June, and I'm sure it happened everywhere, is that we couldn't train as many poll workers. So we didn't have as many poll workers. We didn't have as many sites because we didn't have the people to man it. And then we couldn't let in the traffic at one time so that we could maintain social distancing. Mm -hmm. So we could only have 10 people in. And after every person voted, you had to clean down the area, which is never a concern, you know, before COVID. So that adds time. It adds an inordinate amount of time. So what, I applaud my agency for, I guess, patting ourselves on the back is we really stressed vote early so that this was the largest early voting turnout ever. We had, I want to say, close to 200,000 votes early, and we only had about 30,000 to 40,000 on election day. So everything went smoothly for us, you know. And so, you know, I, I think this is the wave of the future even outside of COVID that people are going to realize that it's not, and we've had early voting for uh, about, I would say 10 years, but this was the best, uh, the best utilization of it. And this, we had drops as well. This ties directly into conversation that Lavelle and I have been having all week and maybe longer than that. We've all seen the shows. We've watched every news station once they've announced there were these celebrations in the street. And to your point, Meaty, I'm freaked out because I'm like, COVID still exists and it's real, even though we're tired of it. 
But as we're as I'm watching city after city, you know, people partying, uh, my my comment to Lavelle was, I'm with it. I, I'm glad, and I'm already my mind is already on the midterm elections. My my mind is already on what do I have to do between now and then to make sure that there's enough allies, you know, in the Senate in the House to to really be able to get something done. Well, and first, I'm sorry. Check. We still we still have this Georgia the Georgia runoffs, so that's potentially two senators that could flip the house, flip the Senate. Yeah, you know. Yeah, James, what, that's, that's a, huge. That's a good entry point. We know we saw that Jamie Harrison down in um, South Carolina looked like he had a shot at, at getting Lindsey Graham out of there, and people from all over the country were donating money. Uh, to help with his campaign, you know, make sure he had enough money for messaging and it didn't work out. Right. I was encouraging the guys, look, let's cut the check. Let's, you know, let's participate, but we can't vote in South Carolina. Right. So regarding that Georgia thing, and this question is to you, Vel, what do we do? Is, is, is the money is obviously not enough, right? How can we participate in a way that's meaningful uh, from a distance? I mean, if you have the time and the effort and the, and, and the energy and resources, um, get on the bus and go down there and help um, drive out voters, knock on doors, go to schools, go to churches, you know, let Georgia know that they hold an inordinate amount of power to influence policy for at least the next four years, if not, you know, the next four, six, eight, now 12 to come. You know, Georgia could be a state that has a major influence in politics, politics going forward. Um, money won't solve the issue. All money can do is just flood the airwaves, create more noise. You know, yes, you can drop more leaflets, you can print more flyers, you can put more ads on the air, um, but that's just more fatigue that people are gonna tune out on. But if you can get in front of people face to face and let them know that their vote counts, that every vote counts, especially, you know, within your state, within your local jurisdiction, and you can make a difference. You know, your vote is one to one. So it's, it's that kind of on the ground grassroots messaging um, that needs to happen. But if you can't do that in person, then put your money towards organizations that are doing that. You know, uh, don't go to the campaigns. Now, campaigns in themselves are just, are focused on, I think, things that don't touch people. You know, find the organizations that are really out there pushing for voter drives, educating voters, you know, finding out what their issues are to make sure that the elected officials who are on the ballot can address those issues and reach those people. Mm-hmm. To something you talked about earlier, Rudy, and this perfectly matches where you are, uh, Meaty. The um, it took COVID for us to, to change a lot. Right. Like COVID pushed us forward to bring to light the technologies that allow people to work from home. It created, you know, education from home. It created probably way more family time than, than a lot of us even were ready for. Right. Um, and, and one of the biggest deals is we've got this huge election. I think that it was a kind of a combination of, you know, the, the polarization of the candidates, as well as the fact that we in some States were present, you know, the request for ballots, uh, we were encouraged to vote from home. So that's this year. And I and in my in mind's eye, I'm imagining COVID maybe has another year run before we, you know, really kind of have it under control. So how do we keep that that same energy in the next cycle? 
So B, I think for me, uh, particularly live as a district resident for over 25 years now, I think um, what LaBelle just mentioned about grassroots uh, boots on the ground, phone calls, active engagement is an absolute necessity. Um, the, the Greek letter organizations that you spoke of, other black organizations that are, for example, I think we should just really take a page out of Stacey Abrams' book. Like what in the world did she do with her hmm. fair fight organization to literally turn 800,000 new regist persons registered to vote in Georgia. That is the playbook, as it was for President Barack Obama. He had boots on the ground, very grassroots organization for when he won. And he did not win, nor was he backed by major large corporations at, you know, during his first election. Um, but I will say, interestingly enough, um, I've, be I've become more involved and more interested in really learning about voter rights, voter suppression, the things that particularly uh, black and brown individuals and other immigrants have gone through. Um, what I find particularly uh, disturbing, however, is that even with everything that has taken place, I've had four conversations just within the last week of people who might have seen my IG posts or Facebook posts or people that I've worked with, oh my God, congratulations, et cetera, which I'm extremely elated about and humbled, but there were still four particularly um, young black men that were completely disenfranchised with the system and said they did not vote right. because they did not like Biden and or Trump. And so I'm not sure if you or Lavelle or Rudy can help me understand, particularly as young black men. Well, you guys aren't young, but <laughs> um, <Damn! laughs> these, these were these were young men in their 20s who were so disenfranchised about the political system that they just chose to not participate. One stating, oh, well, you know, Biden helped put all the men in jail and I have a lot of family members in prison and locked up now. You know, so I think we have to make sure we still have the conversation and it can't just be a every four year conversation. It has to be a consistent, constant conversation that we have with everyone to make sure people have the facts. Now, and I will end on this, as a woman of faith, I really do believe that God had created and or rather allowed, I rephrase that, he allowed the pandemic to really make the entire world, quite frankly, just pause. And so everybody was tuned into technology, right? Because you're not going to work in person for the most part. Um, you're not meeting with your families for the most part or your friends. You're doing virtual birthday parties, virtual happy hours. You're, 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 you know, everything you're doing is connected to the television and or your computer or your phone. So with that, the messaging that one side of the aisle versus the other side of the aisle had it was very key and integral, I think. However, what we have to remember is that there is still nearly 50% of the country, even though we all sat, heard the same messaging, still believed, quite frankly, we, we won and it was great. We meaning if you're a Democrat, but there's a still large majority of people who quite frankly were right on the cusp and they could have gone either way. And so as an elector, I think, and, and educating myself even more in that process, we cannot allow um, 11 states out of the 50 states to control our democracy. And that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. We have to understand what the democratic process is. You know, Rudy can help. Maybe he can help continue to explain and share and educate individuals for what that means, because he's probably most knowledgeable than any of us as to what that process really looks like. And so, as I shared earlier, when I went back and reflected on how did I get to become electoral for electoral vote person for the District of Columbia? What does it mean? What is its history? Um, 
you know, it's it's scary when I really thought about when you talk about safe states versus swing states, literally, if you only win 11 states, you won the presidency. Mm. So that's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) So I want to hear about the process of becoming an elector, but let me move to the, the point you brought up about addressing young men and keeping that conversation hot. So Rudy, you're a dad. How do we, how do we make civics fly? Right? Like how do we, how do you, how do you tell Maverick and his friends that Mm -hmm. this is why it's important and, and effective, not, not just be lecturing yet again, dad, but like actually make sure that it happens. And I bet for Mav, it probably happens, but what about his friends or his friend's friends? What is the, how do we do it? First of all, let me say I'm, I'm the coolest dad, you know, I'm going to hang up on you right now. (laughs) (laughs) so what it's been is is that i've listened to their music and i I enjoy it i appreciate their form of hip-hop you know a lot of people don't like trap a lot of people don't like amigos or anything like that but i find something in it that's interesting so that i can connect with him on that level on his level as well as i'm giving him music from my generation and and you know if he doesn't like it it's okay but there's a lot of stuff that he does like and then we go back and forth. So we communicate on a level through music that really binds us because it's all hip hop, right? So they've seen me as an election worker their whole lives. His friends have seen me as, as doing that. And so it wasn't a, it wasn't really a lecture thing. It was just what I did. And so they, they felt it only natural to do that, you know, and then we'd always talk about issues that were important to them. And I'd say, well, how do you think that, that gets to it? Like marijuana. You know, they, they, they would talk about, you know, the legalization of marijuana and the industry of marijuana and the cannabis industry in general. And I'd say, well, how do you think that came to be in D.C.? Like, you know, it came to be because one guy was like, you know what? This white guy was like, you know what? I want it to be legal. I'm going to do an initiative to get it to be legal. How do you think it became legal now that there's psychedelic mushrooms that are that are illegal, that, that are something that you can partake in and not get arrested for on the on the local level mm. and it's like because initiatives so you have the power it's one person that has the power to convince other people that are like-minded to do something about what they want and so when i presented it to them in that fashion and the funny thing is is that it's not even necessarily about you know your legislator you can be a legislator you can start the moment you can be the foment for change by doing an initiative. Every state has the initiative right. And some states are even more broad than here in D.C. Because D.C. you're kind of limited because you can't deal with appropriations. But California, you can, you know, institute tax policy. Now, granted, California is huge. So you have to get millions upon millions of people to see your point of view. Right. But it's only it, it, you have to start somewhere. And so. That's what I've been telling them and educating my kid and his friends because they're always this is the house. This is where everybody comes to meet up. So we always talk about everything that they're dealing with on their minds and, you know, like school in terms of what they didn't like about school. I was like, well, why don't you try to change it? Why don't you get into the school school government or why don't you talk to the administrators about things you don't like? If you don't like the dress code and this is my daughter's issues that she doesn't like the dress code. So I was like, well, why don't you go? And get some like-minded students and then make a petition and, and go forward to the PTA and, and let them know that this is an onerous dress code. It only affects women. It doesn't affect boys. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and they're like, huh. And I'm like, that's how politics works. That's how it is. That's how you govern yourself. To that point, and it's something, once again, that, that Vel, you and I have been talking about, there's the, there's the first uh, participation mode, which is I'm going to put the person in office that I think is the, the candidate that best reflects my wants. But I think there's the, there's the other side, which is now that you're there, let me tell you what I want. Right. And I think that I think I know I've fallen short of that big time. Like I'll, I'll vote my mind or my candidate, but they don't hear from right. me between here and there. I don't I don't ask. So I asked Vel this the other night. I said, so what's one thing that we want? Like, it, it doesn't even matter what level we're talking about. If you're talking about presidential right, what's one thing you want? But even if uh, on, in, I'm in North Carolina, in my county, I have to think about what are some of the things I want. So I'm going to put you on the spot. And I want you to think about it for a second. I'd love to hear some of the things that you might want to see, and it could be local level or national level. Well, I think right now, um, uh, police reform obviously is on the table. And as what happens here in America, you know, things are public and they're out and open. And then once the next cycle comes in, those things are forgotten. So, you know, it's on us to keep our issues in front and out front, you know, in the hearts and in the minds of those people who we put in power to affect change for us. So uh, that's the one thing definitely that I would would still be going for. Um, and however that needs to manifest in on a national level, locally and so forth, um, that, that would be my push. You come from a police family. Like, what does that look like? And what are those conversations at home? I mean, <laughs> my grandfather is no longer with us. Um, I've, I've heard stories about him, you know, um, I have articles, uh, with him and him busting down the, uh, El Rookin gang in, in, in Chicago. So, um, your mom's a police officer, was a police officer re- retired. And, um, so when you talk about police reform, you know, what does that trigger in her? To, what does that mean? Is she in agreement, or is she, you know, dismissive or what is, what do you think that, how does that energy go in those conversations? Well, I mean, we uh, touch on, we touch on those things lightly because our topics are more on family-related things, just because of of our distance and COVID and everything else. Um, um, but just in general, she is not a fan of police shooting black people in the streets. You know, she has you know been a part of you know tactical forces and knows how things kind of operate. So, um, at least in passing conversations no she is not opposed and encourages you know um police police reform you know where mm-hmm. it can you know and should do good for the people who they're trying to serve right rudy what's one thing that you want either locally or you know regionally or nationally from your your government um from dc government i would like more affordable housing i don't like the fact that People are being systematically pushed out of, you know, people that made up the district before this influx of moneyed interest came in. And I'm not going to even just put it on white people because it's black people, too. But there's no place for people of modest income to live like around my I work around Navy Yards. They're building up buildings at the most astronomical clip. It looks like a mini Manhattan. Right. Mm -hmm. And. The studios are going for $2,000 on average, $2,000 a month. Nobody can afford it, that, you know. And so 
I'm just trying to see where are all the middle class people like you got you do have young people that are coming, young professionals that are coming into the district that don't have any families. But if you do have a family, you can't afford to live. So I don't want to see it to where there is just a, a stark class division where they just sequester everybody, sequester everybody into one particular ward. And there's no services in that ward. And it becomes the same thing. It becomes, for lack of a better term, a housing project. I need it to be where it's integrated, where you have to live with people of of modest means. And hopefully they are able to do for themselves and get maybe closer to your level. So I know it's so difficult to figure out how to work that. Like, how do you address homelessness? Like, we have homeless people that are in my neighborhood and our houses go for over a million dollars, in excess of a million dollars. But yet and still, black guy, and it's not that I'm complaining about the homeless people. I'm complaining that I want them to have somewhere to be. I want them to, to be able to live a comfortable life, you know? And so I don't know how to address it. That's the, that's the thing is like, I'm, I'm pointing out a problem, but I have no solutions. And that's, that's the frustrating part for me. I had this, this paradox, like, um, basically, uh, Bezos made a billion dollars in one day, right? Right. He made a billion in one day, a few months back, just off of trade transactions. If he would have taken that billion dollars he could have fed everybody in America for a day. There's so many beautiful things he could have done, but our resources are so hoarded. And I know, I mean, I'm probably sounding like a socialist here, but our resources are so hoarded in that there's entirely too much money constant and resources constituted into or concentrated into one or a small minority of the population that there's going to be resentment and it's going to come to a point where it boils over and the have nots are going to do what they did in France, you know, with the French Revolution. They're going to do what they did in England. You know, every society goes through this. And, you know, we're coming close to that. It's we're like coming really close. crazy that, you know, socialism is such a bad word in, in capitalist uh, America. Uh, something we're going to definitely have to revisit. And on the topic of addressing homelessness, I would challenge that idea with figuring out who in the world is doing it great. Like who can who's modeling success already that we could bring to the table because it's great like i think you you kind of self-acknowledge that i see a problem and i'd like to see a solution to it and i probably would imagine that a politician who's not an expert in most cases of, of that thing is looking for somebody to come to the table not only with a solution but with solution and people's signatures behind it you know to to trigger taking it serious yeah yeah i just wanted just to uh jump in real quick and address uh Meaty's point about engaging young black men and i'll make it quick um I think that definitely um, we need to impress upon the youth, black men in particular, that that they that it's a political process, and voting is just one piece of that. Everyone won't vote, you know, and we can't, you know, that's something that we can legislate or mandate. People have, quote unquote, the right not to vote. People have the right not to do things that even you know, even though we may feel that is that it's in their best interest. Or in, our, or in our collective best interest. However, what we can do is offer them different ways to participate in the process to where if they're not gonna vote, they're still gonna make positive contributions to the struggle of those who are putting people in office and are using their vote. You know, there are many ways to keep this train running, you know, from the, from the engine to the caboose. 
So, you know, if we can offer them just those avenues, then there's ways to put that energy or that lack of energy into a better um, political framework. Mm-hmm. Media, you're up. First one to Lavelle's point is I, I completely and 150 percent agree with what he stated. And we just need to ensure, however, um, you know, in the words of John Lewis, is that our vote is the most powerful nonviolent instrument that we have to even participate in the democracy and society in which we live. And I would implore not just black men or any all of us, all American citizens need to understand that sometimes the system is more afraid of us casting a ballot than they are of us receiving a bullet, quite frankly. And so that's something that, I, that I've just been sitting with. Uh, to answer your initial question, B, about what is it that I want, uh, quite frankly, there is not just one thing. I look at it as more so as a Venn diagram because all of the things you know, that even you alluded to, you know, Rudy, et cetera, alluded to, all intersects. And so, for example, I'm a nurse. So one of the first things I want is um, health care. I want to reduce inequities and I want to reduce disparities and I want to increase access for it to be fair and equitable healthcare for everyone. I do believe that healthcare should be a right and not just a privilege for those of us that can afford it. Because if you don't have the money, that truly is the differentiation between you living for five more years or 20 more years. Um, I've had three friends this year, three friends that, um, and at the tender age of 45 myself and having a mother who, who passed away, contracted uh, breast cancer. And African-American women die at a significant higher rate of breast cancer, not because that we have the disease or um, the the illness. It is because we are often diagnosed late and we receive treatment late. So that's not addressed. Then you have issues. So therefore, if I can't not have adequate health care to be healthy to work, then that becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. Then I become homeless, as Rudy said. Then I don't have a place to live, which impacts my housing. And then I'm sitting out in the street loitering, which impacts police that may or may not harass me or I may not end up harassing them and or I might be so disenfranchised or so desperate that I then do go against the law and commit crimes just to have self-fulfillment. So for me, I want to see education be addressed as a person who lives in the District of Columbia, it's appalling that I do pay more than $20,000 a year for my son to go to a private school because of the school in my particular area that may not be as best. And you have to get into a lottery system to try to get into the best public school. That's a problem. Um, affordable housing, that was already alluded to. Um, definitely police reform. Um, as a Black woman, again, the, the fact that Brianna's Taylor life is less valued than the bullet that went into a wall mm. is appalling. Um, and then, of course, healthcare. So for me, it's a Venn diagram and it's not just one. Um, and to answer your question about how to really get it involved, no one is an expert. And I'm sorry, but I will say it. And again, this is me speaking on my own behalf. I don't understand how there is a neurosurgeon that is head of housing and urban development regardless of his political views, why not put him, if anything, over health and human services? Because that is where his expertise is in health. And he is a phenomenal surgeon, not to mention his name. But housing, that doesn't make sense. I am a nurse. Why would you put me in charge of, you know, construction? That doesn't make sense. And so I think it's so important that we have the right people that are at the table, um, that are nonpartisan, that are unbiased, 
that can truly give true factual evidence-based, as we say in healthcare, evidence-based practice that will allow those decisions to be made. So until we until we continue, as we continue rather, to put politics over people and policies over people and not put the people first, we're going to have this continual negative uh, cycle. Agreed. The thing, and I had this argument last weekend uh, with uh, one of our classmates about the thing that I want to see. And this is before I even framed it as such. It was just about how do we move forward? And this was even before election results were announced. We were just, you know, together and talking about what our abilities are, how much responsibility we have to um, positively impact our communities. And my deal was, my starting point would be education. I want the value and the quality of a public education in any town to be equivalent to any other town. And that's, that sounds, sounds easy. It's probably if, if one of our education experts were on here, they'd be like, well, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's way harder than it sounds. I get it. But, you know, we know that black people's contributions to American history has been, you know, minimized and deleted. Um, and we know that that zip code matters when it comes to the quality of education. It's why, Meaty lives in D.C. but pays $20,000 a year for private school. And it's why I no longer live in New Jersey. Like my wife and I left in when the kids were in middle school because the choice was either we continue here and I gear up to pay $25,000, $30,000 each for our boys to go to private school or we change zip codes. I'm in yeah. North Carolina and I now. I just have one B. <laughs> right. See, I'm in North Carolina now. And, I, and we're in the neighborhood that had the middle school that fed the high school that we wanted so that we could kind of close out that, that, that level of education correctly. And that's my starting point. I would, if, if I can go and look, talk, and that's probably not a national discussion. Maybe it's a national discussion in terms of that's where the funding would come from. But I think that I have to maybe deal locally on that and say, Hey, let me talk to the governor of North Carolina, you know, even, even maybe it's down to the County level, but this is the thing that I think is most important. And my, my deal in these conversations is always, you know, there's, it's one thing to have kind of a big picture discussion, but all this stuff is local and my power mag- is magnified exponentially the closer I get to home than it is talking that national level stuff. Vel, you had something? I just real quick, you mentioned um, education and uh, zip codes. I think really uh, to bring uh, Midi's point back to full circle is that all these things have intersectionality. And none of these things really happen in, in a vacuum or a bubble. You really can't change education until you change how education is, is being funded on, on one level. How's it being funded? You know, it's through taxes and zip codes. So um, everything is built upon everything else, you know, and it's difficult to try to fix everything at one time. But the more we understand how things are interrelated, the more we can better strategize and, you know, create tactics to you know, um, address issues that help to broaden out and affect other areas, you know, besides our own single issue, quote unquote, um, things that we just proposed right now. No, it's interesting. You said that not to hijack this B, but really quick, there is a phenomenal book out there called cast by Isabella Wilkerson, which I personally am going to make my son read. Um, it's, it is, in my opinion, one of the most scientific, very basic understanding um, for me, again, um, yes, I read Roots. Yes, I read all those other books, the ISIS papers. I get it. But the way Isabella Wilkerson really talks about 
um, to your point, Bell, about the fact how all these things have uh, are intersected is because it's based off of a system that is truly designed to create the results of what it is. So what we see today is by design. And so until we have that conversation and first acknowledge that it is by design, then we can't go back to the drawing board. We need the right architects to truly restructure what that system looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, I like capitalism. I think you should work hard if you do this and you should be able to make a little bit more money. There's nothing wrong with that, but there has to be. But I think we also can't be so left where everything is just equal. Media's working hard to pay for the person who's doing nothing across the street. That's not fair either, right? So I think there's a, a point in place in time where we have to decide as a country, if we don't really acknowledge or deal with our first original sin, and not to really go there, because that's 10 different, many of your podcasts be, but if we don't deal with our original sin, all of these things that we are talking about, even just now, will never be resolved. And so I'm always reminded of even James Baldwin, who always says to be somewhat woke in America and conscious is to be in a constant state of rage, because even the more that I realize, um, you know, hearing Rudy talk about still uh, counting ballots. People don't know that. People think it's, oh, it is over. But I'm just saying people don't understand the process. So if you are not educated and or informed about what the system is, you have to participate in order for you to be able to make a change. And so I just want to simply say that we have to continue to educate. We have to continue to talk. We have to continue to be transparent. We have to continue um, and I agree with you, B, quite frankly, if there's anything that I would start off with is education, because the fact that as a black woman, I know that my ancestors were great and marvelous and fabulous. I know what they endured and what they contributed. However, quite frankly, I'm from Eastern Pennsylvania, which was one of those counties. Unfortunately, I'm a proud Pennsylvanian that was quite teetering on red and blue. And I'm like, Lord, have mercy. And when I go home, there are Confederate flags flying in Eastern Pennsylvania, but to now stand here in Washington, D.C. and understand I did not have my first true education, if you will, until I came to Howard University. And that's what I contribute a lot of my confidence, a lot of knowing who I am. Of course, I knew that. I never I don't think I ever lacked self-esteem. But understanding what that means as a black woman, I learned more of that here at Howard University. Having my first black teacher was college ever. And mm. so when you don't see yourself and I'm a woman, I can only imagine as young black men when you don't see yourself and what is it you're trying to become. And so um, that's just my, my soapbox moment there is that Isabella Wilkerson's book that talks about caste, which truly breaks down with, I think she has about a 15 page bibliography. It is not just her feelings and or her, her emotions. It is definitely backed up with research where she talks about how this system was created by design. I'll definitely check that out. You guys know uh, Tark. Um, mm -hmm. Tark was on um, on a talk the other night, and I know he's he runs Combs Enterprises now. And you know, Puff just came out with his Our Black Party deal, which is you know, according to the the the, the talk I saw Puff give, was saying that look, you know, because we are where we are now, we have to vote, you know, not pro us, but kind of anti somebody else because we weren't prepared. We're never going to be this unprepared again. We need to recenter. Uh, you know, issues that affect the black community and the black voter in the conversation leading up to these elections. So we need a new political party. I know you're somewhat aware of what, you know, maybe what Puff's been talking about, what Ice Cube's been talking about. What do you guys hear and what's your, what's your opinion on that stuff? So with respect to a party, to get recognition, 
in any jurisdiction, you're going to have to have votes for an election. So they're going to have to identify with this party because what happens is you have the primary system where you, if you're a recognized party, you're, you're able to run a primary. And that means you have to have a certain percentage of the vote in the previous statewide election. So like a presidential election, you have to have a certain amount of votes cast for your party so that you can even run a primary because, and that's, what's been the predominant two party system is that the money that's involved in the democratic and the Republican party to keep people registered in one or the other, it's because it's brand recognition and brand loyalty. So if he's trying to have another party, what he's going to have to do is on a state by state level, get that party recognized as a major party by having a certain amount of people voting in that, in that contest, the, the two, and it's going to take at least four years. So right. sometimes it'll be like the, the, you have to be in the election prior to, and you might have federal elections every two years so that you are recognized as a, as a party in that, in that state, like the green party, libertarian party, they've all had those travails in each state, like here in DC, the green party is recognized as a major party that can have a primary because they've had people vote consistently identifying themselves as that for multiple election cycles. So that's the first step to getting a party, a new party form, because there's been hundreds, hundreds of parties, political parties, national political parties throughout the history of America, the Whigs, the know nothings, you know, and what happens is the parties that stay the longest are the ones where people identify with their centrist ideas and policies the most. So Republicans, yes, they have changed, but the Republicans were the progressive black party when, you know, it, right after Lincoln and up until the 40s and 50s, whereas the Democrats, the Dixiecrats were the ones that were what we would seem to think of as the Republican Party today. What are the pros mm -hmm. and cons of registering independent versus one of the two major parties? I'm an independent. So the, the con definitely is you don't get a say in who is the candidate or the standard bearer for any of the elections until, you know, you get to the general election. So I don't get to vote in primaries. Some states do have open primaries where you can where you can vote as an independent. But for the most part, they don't. And it's, it's by the largesse of the party. The parties have the option of not allowing somebody in or bringing somebody in. So. It depends on what state you, you live in. So, again, all elections are local. But the other part is the pro, I guess, would be is that I'm not beholden to any party. I'm not beholden like when I have discussions with people. And so I was I'm going to track back when you were talking about what we can do in terms of grassroots. Facebook is an amazing, amazing resource that we really don't use to its full potential. We use it to basically floss or, you know, talk about things that are going on in our lives to celebrate things or keeping up with gossip or looking at funny memes. But Facebook also can be used to connect with people from your high school, per se, that may not have the same political ideologies as you do. And what I'm seeing a lot on Facebook is people blocking people and it feels like a really good thing, but you shouldn't. You should always want to listen to what other people are having to say, because the only way that we can come together and have a consensus as a body politic is if we know exactly how they think and they know how we think and how we're coming to 
making our informed decisions. Like, so a lot of the rumors that you hear in terms of this election with the fraud and and I'm seeing it, I'm seeing my high school friends talking about, you got to cheat to win. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And not in a, in a, in a mean, nasty way or a vindictive way. I literally want to know what it is you see where there was cheating. And so they'll say something like, well, they didn't allow the poll workers in. And I'm like, well, I can show you this story where it went to court in four different jurisdictions and the court was incredulous. They were like, so they were 15 feet away. What, what do you want? And so <laughs> I know they want to audit as a right. I know for a fact as an election worker that you always have pe- observers from both campaigns to see that everything is on the up and up. I also know that election workers, by and large, are in that capacity are nonpartisan because we don't know whose ballot is whose. We, we, everything is anonymous. So you're not, it, it, it would be quite difficult to change the results in the election when you don't know which ballots are saying what. So I try to explain that, you know, and they may take it or they may not, but they always appreciate that I'm willing to talk with them, mm. you know. And some of them are racist. Yeah. Some of them don't realize they're racist, you know, but you talk to them like that, what you just said is problematic, you know, and this is why this is what, and it's not that it's a PC thing. It's just a decency thing. Like you're, you're casting everybody with the same vote because you're saying that black lives matter is a terrorist organization. I'm like, what makes you, what brings you to that conclusion? You know, they're, they're trying to protest you know, police brutality. So what brings, well, all the rioting, that's Black Lives Matter. I'm like, are you sure it's people that are affiliated with Black Lives Matter? And, and what is Black Lives Matter to you? You know, because what I'm seeing is a lot of white people protesting police brutality and taking an opportunistic chance to loot. And I don't know if they're affiliated with anything. And so, like, we just talk. And when you do that, you get a chance to say, yeah, we may not agree, but at least we can talk. And that's the thing is that we're not being civil. Like, and Trump really, really messed up the dynamic a lot because people think it's okay not to be civil and to just stick it to the other side. And we're, we're in the same way. Like, regrettably, I see us doing the same thing. 